The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bible to Acts chapter 6. Today we are going to cover verses 1 through 7. About a year ago, I had the, the privilege to attend a pastor's gathering in Philadelphia. And one of the highlights of that event was hearing from a pastor who had served in the same church for about 30 years. And he spent about an hour explaining maybe half a dozen to a dozen different events that had happened over the course of his ministry that had the potential to destroy his church. These events that he was talking about were like a giant wrecking ball they saw swinging towards them, getting ready to absolutely demolish what the Lord had built there. Each trial he mentioned seemed more daunting than the one before. I could not imagine some of the difficulties he was mentioning, but the Lord was with him. Our loving God protected that church and always brought them through the trial even stronger than before. Now today what we're going to see take place in our text is that there was an event taking place that had the potential to break the church apart. But God, who has been our help in ages past, is still our hope for years to come. We are going to see how he upheld this body. We are going to see how the Lord sheltered them from the stormy blast. In fact, we will see God take this controversy that to any worldly organization could have been used to destroy it. We are going to see it being used to breed humility and servanthood in the church. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we delight in you. We thank you for your love and for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you are good and you are gracious to us, that you are our God in days that are difficult, in days that are challenging, when temptations arise and draw people into sin within the church, that you guard the church and protect them through church discipline and through the care of the body, bringing one another back and casting out the wolves. And Lord, we thank you that you are a kind God in the way that you guard us from external dangers, as we see happening all through the book of Acts, but also internal dangers that could rend the church asunder. We thank you, God, that you are indeed our God in ages past, and you will be our hope for years to come. We pray that you would, in, in this sermon today, give us the great honor of experiencing your presence through the Holy Spirit. Help us to hear with ears to hear, given by your, your hand alone. We pray that today, as we come before your word, we would be humbled. If there is anything that we don't understand, I pray for clarity. If there is anything we don't agree with in your word, I pray that we would submit and that we would recognize if we have a difference than your word teaches it is we who need to change. We pray this all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, at this time, I'm actually going to ask if you can let me borrow your Bible. I left my Bible down there. And we're going to begin by reading from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God 
to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, and the proselyte uh, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Our plan of attack this morning is to consider the following three points from the text. First, we're going to consider growing pains. Secondly, God's priorities. And thirdly, guiding principles. Let's begin with growing pains. When children are growing up, they will often experience a lot of pain, especially in their legs, as they extend and their ligaments and their bones are expanding so that they will eventually reach their maximum. You know what I'm talking about, right? Perhaps you experienced that. How many of you would say that you had growing pains when you were growing up? You had those physical... I noticed a lot of men raising their hands. Ladies, anybody? A few, a few ladies back there? When children are growing up, there's often a stretching process that makes it painful to grow. But we want them to grow. We desire them to grow. It's, it's not a good thing if they continue on as a sixth, uh, six-year-old forever. We want them to grow into adulthood. And when an organization grows, especially when it grows rapidly, there are changes that have to take place in its structure in order for it to continue to function well. And to use business terminology, the early church was like a small startup that rapidly became a multinational conglomerate. But the church is certainly not a business, and its success cannot be attributed to anything other than the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So let's do a quick recap here of the growing pains that we've encountered so far in the book of Acts. We first find a group of about 120 disciples of Jesus in the upper room. They are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And when he arrived, the apostles went outside into the marketplace and they declared the gospel and 3,000 people were saved after hearing Peter's sermon. That was a really high starting point. And that continued on for a short time until Peter and John healed a man as they were on their way to the temple and they were rewarded by being arrested and imprisoned and tried by the religious rulers. But the threats against the church only caused the people of God to turn to deeper prayer. The threats did not stop or hinder or slow the church down. Rather, it stimulated even more growth. But then there was an attack from the inside. Two swindlers, Ananias and Sapphira, trying to keep money from the church by bringing the church itself into sin. They lied, and for that, they were both struck dead by God. And from a worldly perspective, that is not the best way to win friends and influence people. But that church was certainly not a seeker-sensitive church, yet, in spite of God's holiness being displayed in the death of Ananias and Sapphira, it did not cause the church to falter but actually produced even more growth. In fact, in Acts 5.14, it says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Then, as you will remember from last week, the apostles were imprisoned and tried and beaten. Why? Just for preaching the gospel. And this 
time, the threats were not limited just to Peter and John. This time, all 12 of the apostles experienced the suffering. Can you imagine if all of your leaders in the church were arrested and tried and beaten? What that might do to the sensitivities of your heart? But they were not swayed. And chapter 5 closes with these words, And every day in the temple from house and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now that brings us to our text this morning. Notice in verse 1 it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, then we see a problem arise. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember that many of the people in this church were not actually citizens of Jerusalem. A great number of them actually had their homes and their wealth in other parts of the empire. Acts chapter 2 informs us that these Jews that were saved on that first day of Pentecost were from at least 15 different nations that were hearing the gospel in their own language. These men and women heard the gospel and they were saved and they chose to stay in Jerusalem rather than going back to their homes so that they might remain with the people of God. Now, these people obviously had great needs since they were initially not planning on remaining in Jerusalem indefinitely. This was the inciting incident, the inciting factor in some people selling off all their possessions, including their land or property, so that they would house and clothe and feed those who were not locals. The church seemed to have organized some kind of delivery method for getting food to those who were in need. However, as we see in verse 1, there were some people who were being overlooked. The official language of the Roman Empire was Latin. That is the language of the Romans, is it not? However, as we see here, the main language that was spoken by those who lived in the Roman Empire was actually Greek. Greek-speaking Jews are known as the Hellenists. And most of the Hellenists were doing fine, but the widows who were among their ranks were being neglected. Now, I want to zoom on this word here for a moment, this word neglect. This means that there was an oversight. That's the literal interpretation of the word, that they missed something that was there. Someone was oblivious to something they were supposed to be doing. This word does not indicate that there was any malice or animosity or that there was any kind of racial or racist motive or intentionality to refuse these widows of their food. There was a language barrier that would have made it difficult. It would have posed a big challenge to know that they have this need because they can't talk to each other in the same language. And more than that, there was a cultural challenge that in those days, women had limited ways to publicly communicate to men. So it seems as though they were unaware that this need existed. But this is a huge issue. I mean, you've got ladies in the church, believers, members of the body who have covenanted together, starving. To this point, The church has always been described as a united front. Luke has always presented them to us in the book of Acts as people who were like one mind. The people have loved each other and gave themselves to serve one another. Chapter 4, verse 32 describes the church this way. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a strong, united church. But then there's a faction that is hurting and who is treated poorly. 
And when a faction in a church is genuinely overlooked or they are hurt, they have a variety of ways that they could respond. Think of a few. Anger, shouting, passive-aggressive comments to undermine the leadership, gossip, slander, you name it. There's a million ways that you can respond that are ungodly. But the church did exactly what they should do. Instead of letting the neglect produce anger and bitterness in their heart, they addressed it head on. Those who had been the subject of hurt voiced their legitimate complaint, and it was heard. Now, there will be some times in the church when people hurt you. That is going to happen. There are going to be occasions when people will say things or do things that will cause you emotional pain. You will not like what they have to say. And that is going to come about because we are a church made up of sinners. Every last one of us falls short of the glory of God. And although we have been redeemed, we are still working that out. And it also happens because we are not all of the same cultural background. And we have lots of different ways that we were raised and things that we have said and things that we don't even realize are offensive to others. There will be times when people will step on your toes. There will be times when people say things that get under your skin. There will be offenses. Sometimes these things are intentional. Most of the time, they are not. Do not demonize that other person in your mind. These Hellenists could have looked at the Jewish people and said, what racists? These people are our enemies. They are attacking us. They are withholding food from us. But do not assume their motives and do not continue to let it bother you and just fester in your heart. Simply follow the pattern of Matthew 18 and speak to them one-on-one, letting them know that they have offended you in some way and that they are straining the relationship in some way, and then seek to restore them to a right living if they are in sin and a right relationship if you are in disunity. The Hellenists, these widows, they had a legitimate complaint. Nobody could look at this and say, well, you know, that's not a big deal. Just, Just let it go. There are times when you should just let things go. In this instance, it is not a time to let things go. They are starving. They were literally going to starve to death if this issue was not solved. They had no ability to even earn income or any needed assistance. This had the potential to be the very first church split. I think we underestimate just how terrible this situation truly was. This had the potential to absolutely decimate them. But I want you to see how the whole event is wrapped up in verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, although this situation had the potential to hit the early church like a hurricane, instead it provided an opportunity for correction and restoration. Instead of being destructive, it was actually constructive. Let's turn our attention now to the second point, God's priorities. In order to see how this event begins to move from a problem to a solution, let's consider now God's priorities in this situation. Look again at verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Notice that there is reasoning here of the apostles that is based in moral judgment of their calling. They declare it is not right. In other words, it is wrong for us to do this. Let's make it clear what they are saying and what they are not saying. They are not saying, you know, 
these widows are unimportant. And they are not saying, this is beneath us. They are not saying, we just have better things to do. The very fact that they took swift action to repair the problem reveals that they actually see this distribution as a serious need that had high priority. However, they rightly recognize that their calling was to a different priority. Not necessarily better, but different. And as we will see in a few minutes, the apostles and the seven servants in this chapter will become the model for all future churches. The apostles here are operating like elders, that we are told how they are to act in the, epis- in the epistles. And these seven servants are prototypical deacons who defined that office for us. So I want to make something very clear so that we do not misunderstand what the apostles are saying. They are announcing that God has prioritized their ministry to be a ministry of the word and a ministry of prayer. There was no written New Testament at this time, so the word that they were referencing here is the Old Testament. Consider what life would have been like for them. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, and now they know the whole Bible, every word of the Old Testament is about him, and now they are going through it and reading it with new eyes. And every day they are going through the word considering what exactly this means in terms of Jesus Christ. Consider at this time they're going through and prayerfully scouring page after page to become more aware of how all of this is about Jesus so that they might teach the church. Now, if the widows did not eat, they would die. But if the apostles focused on that, then the church would die of spiritual malnutrition. One of the most common words that I use when I'm in any kind of a counseling situation, it pops up all the time, is the word priority or prioritize or priorities. We have all been given responsibility. Every last one of us has a lot of things on our plate. We have things God has gifted us as responsibilities that he desires us to carry out rightly in our lives. There's a lot of things you could list, parenting, jobs, whatever it might be. If you have a house, whether you rent or you own, you are responsible for that property. You are responsible to care for those who you are in relationship with in your circle of influence. We all have responsibilities, but we also all have limitations. We all have 24 hours in a day, and we all have to eat, and we have to sleep. We have limitations. So it becomes necessary to determine exactly how much time to give each thing on our list. So please note that God prioritized both of these needs. Neither one of them is ignored in God's economy. He encountered a situation where the church needed the word and needed the uh, time of the apostles in prayer, but it also needed to care for these women. And he prioritizes both of them. But in terms of the leadership, he is setting their heart to focus on times of the word and prayer. They say in verse 4, their central calling, the apostles' central calling says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Let me be very personal with you for a few minutes. I have been experiencing and become more and more aware of my significant limitations as a pastor. There are many days when I feel that I am being pulled in a lot of different directions, and I know for a fact that when I look at my list in the morning, I am not going to be able to get all of those things done. And I feel very inadequate for the task. And I need to confess that one of my biggest failures for you, one of the ways that I have failed this church most often as a leader, has been that I have too often failed to give away things that I should, to delegate. And I have too often attempted to do more than I should, either with the building or with installing lights or painting or 
whatever else, to the detriment of preparing my sermons and teaching and preaching and prayer. And I want you to understand that I like doing those things for the church. I enjoy them, but I confess that I have not always prioritized ministry well. And that is something I'm trying to work on with the help of the elders and the deacons and and you. But just like the apostles stated here in the early church, the primary attention of the leaders of the church, of those who are in the position of elder, must be on the ministry of the word and on prayer. So what are you called to prioritize? Let me just pause for a moment and say, there's, there's a lot of evidence about what happens to a church when this is not how they are designed. When you begin having your leaders primarily focused on other things, whether it's the building or that's on a specific kind of outreach, or if that's on any kind of need within the body, if that is the main priority of their heart, then the people at large are not being taught and trained and shepherded faithfully and well. So I want you to know that I will always do things that I can to the best of my ability. Uh, However, we need to prioritize specific things for specific roles. So what are you called to prioritize? One of the things you must do is use your gifts the way that God has gifted you. Romans 12, 6-8 helps us with this question. It says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. The point being, whatever your gifts are, whatever ways God has given you to serve the church, do it. If you are a member of the church and you are not serving in any way, If you cannot look at the last month and say, here are some ways that I have been able to deny myself and give to others with my life. If you are not serving any way, there is a problem. So here's the deal. If you are able to serve someone without compromising other ministries, do it. If you are able to give that ride or jump that person's car or take somebody to the airport or fix that broken thing at church that's bothered you for a while, then do it. I don't think that most people in our church fall into this error, but it is possible to lean too far in the direction of giving all your time and energy to the body of Christ at the detriment of your own family, where you can give and give and give and give here, but at home you're just letting your kids and your wife slide. You're letting all of your home responsibilities go completely. There needs to be a balance and there needs to be priorities. Do not make excuses in order to avoid serving one another, but also ensure that you organize your life well in such a way that the most important responsibilities that you have before God are not falling through the cracks. Which leads us now to point number three, guiding principles. We're going to talk a little bit about what this looks like as our body at large and a little bit about what this looks like as individuals. Let's see the way the the apostles corrected this in verse three through six. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is the, exert, the earliest example that we have of the office of deacon. 
The church has two offices that are mentioned in the New Testament. That of elder, which is also called the, um, the pastor or the shepherd or the bishop in some ways that they translate it. They're all synonymous. They mean the same thing. The three Greek words are used interchangeably. That is office number one. Office number two now that is set up here is the office of deacon. The word deacon literally translates into English as the word servant. The apostles were consumed with serving people with the word. And now these seven who were chosen were set apart to care for the service of those who were in need, to give to the practical needs of the body. Now, what we are going to do for the next few minutes is to look at this passage to determine what we can glean in terms of rightly ordering our church at large, exactly like God has called us to be. So let's consider now these guiding principles. First, character. These men needed to be, quote, of good repute. What does this mean? It means that their reputation was of the highest respectability, that there had to be evidence that the Holy Spirit was working in their lives and that the word of God had produced wisdom in them that could be seen from a distance. One of the temptations that we can fall into when we're searching for someone in a position in the church is that we can search for someone with the highest earthly skills but ignore character flaws. Well, we need a deacon who can care for this building. There are certain things that are falling apart, and this guy is really good at those things, so you know what? He should be a deacon. But we overlook all of the needs that they have spiritually where they don't seem to be pursuing righteousness or holiness or godliness. As the church grew and it spread across the Roman Empire, there needed to be instruction as to how to identify and establish elders and how they should identify and establish deacons. Paul does just that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul expounds upon what the apostles were describing as being of good repute. With much more detail, Paul writes in verses 8 through 10, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongues, which means not liars or speaking out of both sides of their mouth, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. When we're searching for a deacon, we are not necessarily looking for the most skilled individual, although that's nice if that happens. But we are looking for the most spiritually mature individual. Please notice that these character qualities are not only for super Christians. It's not only for people who are pursuing the position of diaconate. Please notice that these are expectations for all Christians. Every believer is supposed to live like this. Each one of these standards has a myriad of other texts in the New Testament telling them that this is for the church. This is addressed to the entire body, not just those who are to hold a specific office. But those people who are carrying that out are the ones who are being able to fulfill this position of deacon. Secondly, deacons are called to be men. Now, I recognize that this is highly out of step with our modern American culture, but it's important to know that the New Testament never gives any indication of a female diaconate. There are many churches which permit women to serve as deacons, even some churches that I highly respect. But my goal is not to attack them. It's not to attack you if you have a different perspective. My goal is to simply say, let's follow exactly what the scripture teaches us and work our church in accordance with it. So I want to show you that male leadership is a biblical position. Before we even speak of deacons, we can say with certainty that there are certain positions within the church that are 
called to be men. For example, pastors. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. He goes on to give two reasons for this command to the church. Because God made man first, and because woman sinned first. So, by order of creation, and by order of the fall, he is saying, these two things have determined that God would set the church up in such a way that men would be the ones who teach and have authority, which, by the way, he explains in the very next chapter as the position of elder. Neither of these things have changed. God has not gone back and changed the order of creation, nor can we go back and change the order of the fall. Those two standards are completely locked in in historical reality. Therefore, the standard of God for the church does not change simply because the culture changes. Many of the people who have female pastors or deacons will tell you this is a cultural mandate being made by a man of his time who did not understand the modern feminist movement, who did not understand the uprising of equality in men and women. I think Paul understood the relationship between men and women much better than anyone in our society today. Paul understood that God created us both equal in his sight but for different roles and responsibilities in our families, in our, in our homes, and in the church. So we have to be very careful not to bend or waver to our culture and just do what we do because the culture is flowing in that direction. So that's what Paul speaks concerning elders. But what about deacons? Well, just from our passage this morning, let's think about it logically. It's clear that the people who were in need were women. They are the widows, Who better to help these women than women? Why not say, let's gather seven women together to care for them and to distribute food for them? But the apostles did not call for seven women or even just seven people leaving it open to men or women. But they called for seven men. Seems that they are giving a direct statement of exactly what their expectations were. This pattern of male diaconate is not only standard practice, but it is clearly stated in first chapter uh, Timothy, First uh, Timothy, chapter three. It says it this way: Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children with their and their own households well. The qualifications for deacon go beyond his own personal character. According to Paul, if he is married, his wife must also meet certain criteria. If you become a deacon, or if you become an elder for that matter, you are bringing your entire family into a place of ministry. They are going to be submitting to the church in ways where they are giving of you so that you might give to the church. Please understand that these roles, although they are primarily for the man who is in that role, affect everyone in their family. So Paul does not seem to have any notion that a woman might ever be a deacon, which is why he expresses that a deacon must not have more than one wife. They must be a one-woman man. Also, he states here that their wives, the expectation, he never mentions that their husbands would live of a certain criteria, No, specifically that their wives would live in this way. So at RGF, it is our conviction to establish godly men, both as elders and as deacons. Thirdly, congregational appointments. Notice that the apostles brought the entire church into the process. In this instance, the entire church found them and gave the names to the elders so that they could be approved. As members of the church, 
you are responsible to be involved in the locating and the affirming process for deacons. So let me share exactly how this works at Redeeming Grace. Step one, if there is somebody that is not currently a deacon, which you see that meets the criteria for being a deacon, please share that with one of our elders. And we are going to consider that and we are going to see if they are spiritually mature. There may be things that we know that you don't know. There may be areas where they are not interested or desirous yet to, to uh, serve. So what we will do is we will consider and see if they meet the qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Step 2. If we believe that they do meet the qualifications, then we will approach them and we will ask them to consider serving. And we will explain the role, we will explain the responsibilities and qualifications, and we will ask them specific questions, making sure that they actually do meet these qualifications. And then we will ask them to consider carefully and pray before deciding if they want to serve in this way, knowing that it is a major commitment of time and of energy. And if they're married, we ask them, to ensure that their spouse is involved in praying through it with them before determining to serve. We want to make sure that they are on the same page before they sign up to serve as a deacon. Thirdly, if they agree to serve, then the elders will officially nominate the individual at a church business meeting, and you take part in approving them to be deacons here in the body by giving them a yay or nay vote. And when it says in verse 6 that the apostles laid their hands on them, It is a way of saying that they commissioned them then for service. So if somebody is voted in as a deacon, we will lay our hands on them and pray for them, and we will deputize them to serve in the church. A deacon, just like an elder, does not have an indelible mark on their soul that makes them a deacon or elder forever. Please understand what I'm saying. In the Roman Catholic Church, if you become a priest, you are a priest forever. For example, these guys that have now been stripped of some of their the roles and responsibilities because they were found to have, uh, you know, taken advantage of hundreds and hundreds of children. These men are still, by the Roman Catholic Church, considered to be priests because they believe in something called the indelible mark on the soul, that they are now separated from everyone else in the body and they are a higher level of Christian. That is not the role or the way that the church speaks about the diaconate or the role of elder. Here, what we see happening is that there is an opportunity for somebody to become a leader for a specific time. If a deacon or elder moves from one church to another, the office does not move with them. The office is there in order to meet specific needs at specific times. The way we handle this at RGF is to vote for deacons for a three-year term. Once that has expired, the deacon can then choose to serve for another three-year term, but the church must vote on whether or not the individual should continue to serve for another three years. After six years of serving as a deacon, we then require what we call a sabbatical. Sabbatical just means seventh. We require that the seventh year is a year of rest. We do that because we don't want to burn people out. We don't want to overuse them in terms of service. So after that, they are then eligible to start over for another three years if the church approves. We do this also because we desire to remind the church that everyone should be moving in the direction of service. That not, we don't rely just on these people to do all the business and service of the church. Men, if you have been a Christian for several years, you should be striving to be the kind of mature, respectable, servant-hearted person that the church would look at and say, I want that person to be my servant, to be my deacon. I want to deputize them for the care and the needs of this body. At our church, we currently have four deacons. 
Each one of them has a particular ministry that I would like to share with you. But I want to say that their actions go way outside of these boxes. They serve you in a lot of behind-the-scenes ways that you will never know about until you're in heaven. And I want to just take a moment to acknowledge them, recognize what they do, and to honor them for a moment. First, Ben Arnaud. He is the deacon who is responsible for the inventory of the things of the church. If you have toilet paper, it is because of Ben. He is the one who is serving you. These are important things. Ben's wife, Ruby, also joins him in much of his ministry, and the two of them do a million little things that add up to a giant mountain of ministry. We couldn't do a lot of our gatherings that we do with the smooth nature that we do them if we did not have Ben serving in this way. Ray McGann is in charge of church cleaning and the building maintenance. So beyond just teaching children's church and RGF kids, Ray is also consistently ensuring that we have a place to worship that is orderly and is comfortable. Gene Impert is our deacon of prayer and visitation. So if somebody is sick or hospitalized or in need of special care from the church body, you can contact Gene and he will do what he can to drum up an army of people from the church and send them to help care for these needs and especially to pray for them. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, and that is what Gene exudes, which makes him perfect to serve in this role, and his wife Charmaine is striving right beside him as they serve you. And there's also Jonathan Rodriguez, who is in charge of ushering and greeters and the Lord's Supper preparation and supplies. If you are looking around for him right now, you're not going to find him because he is currently serving by translating this Spanish right now, or this service right now, into Spanish for those who need it. He is always looking out for ways to care for the needs of this body. And right now, he is literally behind the scenes. So maybe you're sitting right there, right there and saying, like, so what? Big deal. I mean, thanks for giving me the history lesson and for showing me the inner workings of this church. But what's not, what am I supposed to do about that? I recognize that this sermon has been much more of a teaching than a preaching, much more information than proclamation, but please understand that God has given us these details in order that we might apply them rightly, and we have already considered how God has graciously directed us as a corporate body to carry out this passage, but allow me to leave you with now six final applications for how you can live these things out in your personal life. First, be a servant. Just because the deacons exist it does not mean that you are exempt from ministering with your gifts. Just because you don't have a title does not mean that you are expected to avoid caring for your brothers and sisters around you. The deacons are supposed to do work, but not all of the work by themselves. They are just responsible for organizing and ensuring that the work gets done. So don't increase their burden by being lazy. Seek to serve the body well with the gifts that God has given to you. So be a servant. Secondly, be available. The deacons will occasionally call on you to minister in some way. And you may get a text from Ray saying, hey, can you help clean the church building on this particular weekend? Or you might get a phone call from Gene asking if you can go visit somebody in the hospital. Whenever a need arises and they call on you, please know that they have been given this authority by you, the church, to organize these sorts of things. And they are requesting you in an official church manner so that you might go and serve rightly the needs of the body. Third, be proactive. Don't wait for the deacons to reach out to you with ways to serve. Seek them out and ask how you can get involved. People sometimes ask me, how can I help? And there are a lot of times when I say, I just don't know. But I know what you can do you can reach out to the deacons and say, how can I help? 
you see some issue in the church building, reach out to Ray and say, Ray, how can I help? Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Honor does not just mean words. Honor means acts of serving. Honoring a person looks like finding ways to care for them and then doing it. Fourthly, be prudent. By this, I mean that you are called to be faithful to truly examine the deacon candidates. Do not just simply vote yes for the sake of it. Look at those who are Christ-like. Truly consider their character and consider what we are asking these people to do. We are asking them to lead us in serving so that we might serve the body well. Do not nominate people if they fail to meet the standards set forth in Scripture. Fifth, be growing. Everyone in the church should be striving to meet the moral criteria that we saw today set forth for deacons. Whether they will ever be a deacon or not doesn't matter. We are called to live a righteous and upright life. The deacon's role is to get the details of the mess and administrative details away so that we can set our sights on the gospel without being distracted. And that's what we want to do when we gather. So learn and grow and mature and carry your cross daily regardless of your title. And finally, be gospel-driven. We often talk about being gospel-centered at this church. And that means that we orient all of our life around the reality of the gospel. But we must also be gospel-driven. By this I mean to say that you must be propelled to serve and pushed to love by this good news. If you're serving for another reason, with other motives, then there's a problem. You need to be promoting, being propelled by the gospel. A deacon is just a servant. But there is no greater servant than Jesus himself. He is the true prototype, the one who came to give of himself. He is the one who left the glory of heaven to experience the sufferings of earth. He is the one that left the comfort of his own throne to endure the cruelty of the cross. He left the sinless city of heaven to be made sin for us. Are we willing to get up off our couch and off of our own, you know, lazy boy throne and go out into our church and serve them? Be propelled by the ministry of the gospel. If you are in Christ, consider how he has served you. Although he has not washed your feet, he has done much more. He has washed your soul from the filth of sin. Just like Lazarus, he went from amongst the tombs to call you out of a grave. Jesus touched the leper and was not made unclean, but instead made the leper clean. Likewise, he has touched your soul and not been tainted with your sin, but has washed you white as snow. He has fed you with his word. He has led you like a shepherd. He has bound up your broken heart. He has left you his own armor to wear. He has cultivated you to bear spiritual fruit. He has interceded for you on your behalf. He has led you through the valley of the shadow of death. He has given you spiritual gifts for the sake of the church. He has given you the Holy Spirit. He has united you with God the Father. Look at what God has done through Christ for you. What is our response to such a king that would humble himself in this way? The only appropriate response is to be in awe of his love and worship him with our entire lives. So let that be the fuel that propels your service to others. So as I close, I just want to invite anyone who does not know this Jesus in the way that I've just described him to stick around for a time after the service and before our prayer gathering, I want to ensure that you know what it means to follow Jesus and to be saved from your sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us your son. 
I thank you that you have not left us just to figure out what to do with the church or how it should be organized, that you have given us clear instructions. I thank you that the church is not a business, that we are not designed to operate with the same principles or the same priorities as the world. But I thank you that we have a kingdom that you have given, that we might help to grow the kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ, on this earth. I thank you for the roles and responsibilities of elder and deacon, and I pray that our deacons would continue to operate faithfully and that our church would come around them and gather in ways that serve, that they would give of themselves, that they would lose their life for the sake of others by laying it down when others have need. Lord, I pray that you would please give our church a heart of unity and that when trials arise, for they certainly will, that you would give us the kind of response that these people had, that they would not just become bitter at one another, but that we would care for one another enough to confront one another when there are genuinely problematic issues in the church, and that in doing so, we might find that you are propelling us even further to growth, both spiritually and numerically. Lord, I pray that we would be like the early church in all of the best ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.